Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Julia M. Gossard, your host. Today I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Katie Jarvis, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame, to discuss her new book, Politics in the Marketplace Work, Gender, and Citizenship in Revolutionary France. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today, Katie. Thank you for having me, Julia. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we delve right into kind of talking about politics in the marketplace, I'd like to better introduce our listeners to your really impressive background, Katie. Dr. Jarvis received her doctorate from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and has had had her research funded by the Fulbright Association, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Mellon Foundation slash Council for European Studies. Her research focuses on popular politics, broadly conceived, during the French Revolution, And as her book today demonstrates, is especially interested in the intersection of social and cultural history with a keen eye towards gender history. She's published a number of works on 18th century France in the Journal of Social History, French Historical Studies, La Révolution Française, Annale Historique de la Révolution Française, et Jean Reine Histoire. It's an incredibly impressive record for a young career scholar, and I'm so excited to see where your career goes. The book we'll be discussing today integrates politics, economics, and gender to ask how Parisian market women, Dom des Halles, invented notions of citizenship through everyday trade during the French Revolution. Given the wide array of historiography and fields that this work encompasses, what do you think are the greatest contributions that your monograph adds to the revolutionary history of France? Well, first and foremost, I think my um, greatest contribution is really rethinking our standard narrative of not only gender in the French Revolution, but gender and citizenship in modern France as we've come to know it. We really tend to think about um, citizenship as the institutional type of citizenship we've ended up with today, um, such as the right to vote, the right to participate in political clubs, uh, the right to serve in the military or bear arms, and things that are really associated with um, state institutions. But it really isn't clear at the outset of the revolution that that's what citizenship is going to uh, look like. Um, And so unfortunately, in 1793, when the women's clubs are banned, um, women can no longer participate in these political clubs. And oftentimes, we as historians have pointed to that moment and said, aha, it's these Rousseauian ideas about women being unintelligent or incapable of uh, participation in public politics that have really come to fruition in a legal sense. They were always there, but women are now banned from citizenship and they don't get it back until the 20th century with the right to vote. And um, what I'm really trying to do in this work is to rethink how citizenship is uh, defined in many different forms in its embryonic stages at the start of the revolution when no one really has an idea of what that citizenship was. So uh, in particular, I talk into notions of economic citizenship. So wrestling the idea uh, or the um, idea of 
the way in which people either buy goods or sell food or pay taxes, how these kind of assign them cultural positions in the body politic and allow them to make claims on the state. Uh, so the market women I study um, tend to make the argument that the state should pay attention to them because they help other citizens. So they think of a kind of triangular contract in which uh, their occupational labor, their political activism, and their gendered work as mothers all um, are useful to society, and therefore the state should react to their demands. Um, and so it's really their public public utility and multiple forms of work that form the basis of their civic inclusion and their ability to make demands on the state, not necessarily gender as its a priori cornerstone. Um, and they also talk about an idea of earned citizenship uh, rather than uh, the innate rights that we come to associate with citizenship over the course of the 19th and 20th century. So I would say that's my biggest historiographical intervention. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a, a huge intervention there, especially your point that you're making about it's not necessarily just their gender. It's their utility to society, for sure. Keeping that in mind and kind of the ways in which these are market women, but they're also mothers, could you talk to us a little bit more about these Dom des all both as a group and maybe individually? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so the Dom des all there's about 1,000 of them uh, in Paris. Um, I am talking about actually the market women in Paris. There are other women who call themselves Dame des Halles around France, um, but the most important cluster and the ones I'm focusing on are the ones in Paris. It literally means the woman of Les Halles. Les Halles is the most important central food markets in Paris. Um, and so these are the women who are the retailers in the central marketplace. And um, they sell things for everyday citizens, such as vegetables, fruit, fish, uh, butter, some sell flowers. Um, but really, they're the ones that are selling face-to-face uh, -face with everyday Parisians who come to the market to supply themselves and their families. Um, now, they're not very powerful, in fact, uh, economically powerful uh, as individuals. In fact, many of them are poor. Um, they had originally received their marketplaces um, their ancestors had actually in the 13th century under the Saint King, um, Saint Louis, uh, Louis the Ninth, who had given out these spaces in his public marketplace as a sign of his charity to uh, his good subjects, as a sign of his paternal grace. And uh, throughout the centuries, these places get passed down, um, sometimes through families, sometimes reassigned. Um, and so these are really the kind of people that are forming kind of the retail of the marketplace. Um, they are mostly in the central markets, as I said, in Paris. All of the food has to come into uh, the central markets before it can be sold at satellite markets across Paris. So about, I would say, 90% of the Dame de Halle are actually in the central market. The other 10% uh, fan out into much smaller markets uh, throughout Paris in order to deliver um, retail services to people who are further away from the center of the city. Um, so as you can see, the Dom holds great uh, economic and commercial importance. Um, but going back to their gift of their economic places in the marketplace from the Middle Ages, uh, they also, on the other hand, retain a great political centrality to France as a whole. So um, after they receive these places from the king in his market space uh, and the permission to sell on his land, uh, basically they become semi-representatives of the third estate. So in all of these ritual occasions like feast days, 
baptisms, uh, weddings. Uh, you would have, of course, the clergy, the nobles, and um, the Dom de All. And the Dom de All would be representing the third estate. So they really are seen as a um, as representatives of the popular class, uh, and they hold kind of really great political significance for this reason as well. Um, from a socio kind of economic perspective, who are these women? Well, um, we don't know a ton about them as individuals because they are um, so poor, they don't leave behind many records. So oftentimes their voices are mediated through police or judicial records. Um, but I was able to find um, a, a few pieces of information on at least 151 of these market women uh, through various sources. And we know that most of them um, not only sold in the markets, but lived uh, about two blocks or less away from the markets. So they really uh, dominated the space both commercially, um, but also in the neighborhood as well, which uh, gave them big pull uh, in times of subsistence shortages. Um, and uh, when the revolutionaries are trying to revamp the marketplace uh, through many different economic measures as well. I think that that makes a lot of sense in terms of not wanting to bite the hand that feeds you. That's why sometimes these women are in great positions of power. But the fact that they're in Les all, they're providing sustenance, I think that's such an important part to recognizing their power within society. How does your argument that these women, quote, join the body politic through the work that serves society, meaning, as you said, that it's because of their important role serving the nation with sustenance that gave them citizenship despite being a woman, at least in their minds, compare to other works on gender in the French Revolution? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so what I'm trying to do is actually uh, do a gendered analysis without doing an overtly gendered analysis, um, because uh, I'll give you kind of the, the sweep of how approaches to gender have um, taken shape in the revolutionary historiography. Um, the kind of um, earliest foray into women in the revolution were kind of the... Um, I would say the woman's history vanguard, which kind of had a redemptive pro project of uh, restoring women's agency and activism to the scene and to show that how even though women were excluded, for example, from the right to vote, uh, they still participated in uh, politics in ways that still influenced the course of the revolution. So, for example, um, they were really active in subsistence riots, which held great political overtones when uh, the state couldn't provide. Um, sometimes they uh, voted in primary assemblies uh, outside of the official um, votes later on in the revolution. So this was kind of a um, women did things uh, kind of approach to revolutionary historiography for women. Um, the second kind of um, attempt to talk about women and gender in the revolution was kind of a crisis narrative approach. And so the idea was that um, the revolution created a crisis that allowed women to try to claim citizenship. Um, but the problem with this is that it actually posits citizenship as something already full-fledged and formed, and it's almost like women accidentally um, try to assert their citizenship. So this didn't really seem like a satisfying answer to me. Um, the political culture kind of contingent of historians have really tried to um, erase the lines between the domestic sphere of the home and um, the public sphere of politics, and they've done that by looking at things like um, the family and how, uh, for example, uh, marital contracts uh, can can emulate the social contract and reciprocal duties between citizens and things of that kind of nature. Um, but sometimes these studies uh, look at 
large amalgamations of women. And so um, we're still kind of left looking at women as a group because they're women. Um, Now, the more recent approach has been to look at specific groups of women and men to ask how their kind of um, gender dimensions of their lives change according to circumstance. So for example, um, Clyde Plumezil has looked at prostitutes. Um, other people like Claire Cage have looked at um, priests, uh, Kate Marson with nuns. Um, and so this has kind of been a, a new step to uh, zoom in on particular groups and ask, um, how does gender play into the way they articulate their citizenship? And so while my study is certainly part of this uh, latter move in the historiography, I um, what I'm trying to do is actually decenter gender in the formula of citizenship to begin with. So the problem is if we ask, why are women ultimately excluded from citizenship? Um, We already have our answer. It starts with women were excluded from citizenship because. So um, gender always becomes the answer. Um, So what I try to do in this book is I try to ask um, how basically did the market women socially and economically integrate themselves into the body politics? So going back to what you said, how did they argue that, um, you know, you just we deserve uh, attention from the state to provide us with practical money and currency because we do useful work of selling food to um, all these citizens which need it? Um But then I ask, after asking that, how do malleable ideas of gender play into this notion of citizenship and how are they continually adjusting the balance between these socioeconomic utilitarian arguments that they make and the gendered attributes of their citizenship, uh, those uh, arguments that they make saying um, we're Republican mothers, we're raising good children for the fatherland, therefore you need to um, supply us with um, food that we can sell in the marketplace. So how are they balancing these two different ways they make demands on the state and these two different ways that they envision themselves as contributing members of society and therefore um, good revolutionary citizens? Yeah, thank you for that really helpful historiographical overview of some of the issues dealing with gender and the French Revolution. As you were speaking, it, it really got me thinking about your research with this. When you started coming up with this idea and with this thesis, um, was it the Dom des All that led you to this argument, or was it that you had been seeing some of these other works that had been done and the Dom des All worked as a case study, or is it kind of a combination of the both? In other words, how did you get interested in doing this? Yeah, it was kind of a combination of both. Um, I had originally gotten really interested in the Dom des All because they're everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Um, if you read a narrative of the French Revolution, um, the Dame d'Alle are going to pop up in the October days. They're going to pop up in petitions to the National Assembly at all kind of the great moments of the revolution. It appeared to me that I'd be reading um, an account of what happened. And the side note would be, oh, and the Dame d'Alle were there. Um, but no one had really taken the time or maybe um, found a way to compellingly ask how did they have a continuous experience across the revolution as a whole rather than look at them in each event or uh, quite frankly, just to use them as kind of romantic sprinkling on top of a revolutionary narrative um, in lots of um, earlier works uh, before the mid 20th century, they, they kind of acted as, and there were women, the there were women component. So I really um, wanted to ask uh, what, what formed kind of the tissue, the continuity of their revolutionary experience. 
um, not just why did they intervene on this day uh, in these demonstrations against price controls, but why did they um, make claims to public space on this day? I wanted to see what logic I could kind of weave together to show that um, they were trying to process this new ability to um, make claims on the state in ways that weren't rooted to the king. So in other words, they weren't saying that, you know, the king um, has granted his favor and privilege to us. And therefore, we have the right to say that we should have first right to supplies coming in the marketplace. Right. That those arguments no longer work for them. So how are they going to try to create these new um, ways of um asking the state for things that align with uh, new revolutionary principles. And uh, it's quite clear that they don't think of citizenship as something institutional and uh, they don't see citizenship as something that's individually divided between uh, male citizens and female citizens. And that kind of becomes a starting block for uh, what their duties and rights are in the state, but rather that they really continually return to this argument of utility, whether it's uh, through providing food, through intervening for uh, other citizens uh, in the street or the National Assembly, or through um, doing uh, the traditional gendered work of women that then raise soldiers for the fatherland, a future workers. Um, and so that's kind of how I came to... Uh, ask these questions of the Damde all. So um, they weren't in any way um, the, the starting point for my research, uh, but ultimately um, my ability to amass uh, the Dom and their reactions in many different environments uh, kept pointing to this shared refrain. Uh, and it's it was really fascinating for me to uh, see just how skillful they were in uh, continually articulating this refrain in many different ways. Yeah, I, th I think that it's really interesting to see just how often in your book you see how central these women are to larger political movements, to discussions about citizenship. I was I, I like what you say there about romantic sprinkling in particular because I do think that these women have been used in these dramatic retellings of the French Revolution, maybe in the classroom or in more um, you know historical fiction esque. Uh, uh, tellings of the French Revolution, where they serve as a really dramatic point. And what you're saying is, is that they're actually very central to strict definitions of citizenship, to political activism, to the third estate in ways that maybe we better associate sans-culottes or something like that, and that Dom des Halles are just as important there. Um, one of the arguments that really struck me in politics in the marketplace, um, especially in your uh, discussion early on in the first couple chapters was the centrality of these marché of the marketplaces to Parisians' everyday lives in the 18th century, as well as even before it. And I wonder if you could take a few minutes and just talk about the history of the marketplace, maybe as space, not necessarily just as someplace that's selling food, but as the richer context of marketplaces throughout French history. Certainly. Um, so the first uh, point we should start with if we're thinking about markets before the revolution is that um, we think of them as public spaces today because the public that is uh, the greater population convenes there and uses it. But this is, in fact, um, not the definition of a public space under the old regime. In fact, uh, the public spaces, including most of the marketplaces in Paris, were owned by the only public figure in politics, that is the king himself. Um, so market 
markets, uh, not just in Paris, but across France, um, unless they had special um, dispensations for the king, they were the king's personal property. And so um, the king and the monarchy really kind of draw the boundaries uh, um, culturally and politically and commercially around the marketplace. So the markets were, for example, um, centers uh, for proclamations. If the king wants to um, kind of um, circulate decrees or announcements, uh, they're proclaimed in the marketplace. If the king wants to put criminals in the stock or show his justice in some other kind of punishment measure, um, oftentimes that was done in the marketplace as it was in uh, Paris. There was a pillory there um, until a few decades before the revolution. So this is really a space that belongs um, not just to... uh, belongs in a legal sense to the king. That said, um, they're centrally important because so many people use that space. Um, The marketplaces tend to be small. um, And so therefore, uh, they're engaged in a really vibrant dance every single day. So if we take uh, Leal as an example, um, before the first light of day, um, countryside wholesalers arrive with their carts uh, from their gardens that they've grown uh, fruits and vegetables, um, from the rivers they fished in, uh, from the ocean, um, from the places where cheese has been produced. And they all arrive under the cover of uh, night in the week morning hours to the central uh, marketplace. Now, the problem is you can't actually uh, stay around with all your carts, sell your food, and have time to go home. Uh, So what they do is they actually sell all their food to wholesalers, and then the wholesalers themselves um, subdivide these lots uh, and then sell to retailers. So there's a whole cycle of the marketplace before um, the general population, the clients, the consumers even show up to um, do their shopping, so to speak. Uh, So of course that involves a ton of uh, police regulation. And so when you think about all the things involved in transaction, um, the marketplace really becomes a a laboratory for lots of economic policy changes in the revolution. Um, In order to buy food from your neighbor, you have to have uh, something to exchange. Well, you might be able to exchange credit if uh, they trust you, but you might also have to exchange IOUs, uh, promissory notes, um, sometimes actual currency. Um, And so every time there's a major economic reform, whether that's uh, the attempt to mint paper money or um, the attempt to um, regulate who can sell on public space and why, all of these kind of issues crystallize in a very real, very uh, dramatic, very urgent way in the physical market space as well. And so as a result, since the Dame d'Al are um, really the most numerous players in this market space, uh, they really become a portal for uh, lots of these debates. And of course, um, since they are private individuals uh, trying to operate for profit, uh, they have many opinions on uh, how public space should work. So for example, um, when this public space uh, changes, the tenor of it changes because the public is shifted from the king to uh, the actual people uh, writ large, uh, the Dom all of a sudden have to articulate that they're members of a new public and uh, they have a right to uh, pursue their particular private interests that is sell for profit, uh, not because the king's giving them permission to sell in his marketplace, but because their work, their occupation will actually serve other members of the public uh, now 
people writ large um, and be useful. And so uh, you see them have to, even if their occupation doesn't change, um, the conceptual leaps and bounds uh, that they have to kind of wrestle with and that um, the revolutionaries have to wrestle with to make uh, the marketplace as a space just continue to function on uh, some kind of daily, uh, with some daily regularity. It's just uh, quite amazing. So uh, the marketplaces are not only uh, conceptually important, they're commercially important, they're politically important. um, And for these reasons, they're really just kind of um, a really dynamic space to ask so many questions, uh, which I've tried to broach some of in my book. I think that that point about these being such dynamic spaces is so important. It, It just sounds like it's such a complicated system for the 18th century to have to keep track of and that it seems almost proto-capitalist in a way as well, that these are practices that are leading us to this capitalist economy that will slowly emerge here. And I've seen a couple of maps of these 18th century markets and I'm always so surprised at how intricate the maps are and how wide the sort of merchant space was and how much they're fitting into these areas. And I can only imagine walking through them, not only would it have been so almost a probably a chaotic moment, you would have also been really putting your finger on the pulse of what's happening with normal everyday people, especially during the 1780s when you are having such high fluctuations in the price of flour and bread and food shortages. I'm sure that this was a really important place where the Dom des Halles are seeing the suffering of their customers, probably suffering themselves, and having to really take on sort of an activist approach to this in many ways. Oh, certainly. Um, They definitely intervene in times of food shortages. And um, as you kind of just alluded to, uh, food shortages um, make uh, politicians very scared. So as a result, the police do have their finger on what's going on in the marketplace, not just to uh, enforce regulations, but to really, as you said, uh, feel kind of the, the the mood and the tenor of people and uh, how far they're willing to be pushed, uh, what their needs are. And so something really interesting happens actually during the revolution itself um, when um, the revolutionaries, uh, they're, they're trying to figure out how do you do freedom in the marketplace, whether that's free access to space, whether that's a free use of different types of monetary tokens, uh, whether that means uh, free free markets and supply and demand. And so uh, the police are trying to actually monitor how these different things work in Laal and report back to uh, the deputies. But sometimes uh, the police actually uh, tell the deputies, hey, you know, you are discussing all these economic theories, uh, especially when we talk about political economy, that's really become a hot topic and thinking about, well, for example, how did the physiocrats try to imagine markets? Uh, how did how did the Girondins imagine markets as opposed to the Montagnards? Um, well, the police say, well, all of you are theorizing how markets should work in uh, the assembly halls. Um, actually, maybe you should ask the merchants because you forgot the whole pragmatics of everyday life where people don't always have um, money to immediately exchange, where there's more than one link between the producer and the consumer, where there's transport costs, where weathers affect the field, um, where you know the time in transit affects the price of goods because some deteriorate. And so the market um, place 
really forces the deputies to think about um, how does uh, how, how does the the um, the market as a theory how does how can that be reconciled and still supply people with their everyday goods uh, and the deputies sometimes have um, ch- challenges trying to um, think through their rules that are supposedly universal, but of course, ultimately need to contain several exemptions and reforms in order to actually make the marketplace function. Uh, The maximum, the price cap set on the most essential goods being the uh, biggest example of that. When they first passed the maximum in September uh, 1793, that is the maximum, the general maximum, they had already set a price cap on bread. But when they set a price on um, several other food necessities, um, they don't think that there's going to be a middleman between the producer and the consumer. So as a result, uh, food arrives from the countryside. Uh, the brokers buy it at the maximum price, and now the brokers can't resell it to the retailers because uh, that would involve another price hike for the retailers to make a profit um, to consumers. And so the, the, the market is left kind of hanging in the lurch because actually these kind of principles that the deputies are thinking about this kind of um, bucolic exchange between the farmer and the client uh, do not actually function that way in the chaotic space of the marketplace. I think that people listening to this conversation, as well as those who read your book, will really see that relationship between the rising economy and citizenship and the ways in which people are sort of pushing this economic theory. That economic theory doesn't stay abstract. It becomes very real to people's lives during the French Revolution um, and also becomes, as you really brilliantly argue, part of citizenship. Part of the economic utility of individuals becomes part of citizenship. And certainly this is something that's discussed in other works on the French Revolution, but yours really delves into these women who are at the forefront looking at this. Do you think that the term proto-capitalism is appropriate to use here, or would you push back on that a little bit? Is it a little bit different than that? Is that maybe too linear to go to? I think it depends on who you're applying the adjective to. Um, I wouldn't apply it to the DOM's uh, economic practices because I think it gives them a little bit too um, much uh, cohesion at a time when they're still exploring things. But I definitely think that um, it's it's a time when uh, the revolutionaries are trying to figure out how kind of proto-capitalist attitudes are supposed to work um, with uh, new definitions of citizenship. And there the Dom are really engaged. Um, They're actually, uh, one of the things that I found most uh, absolutely impressive is that these market women who are dirt poor, um, many of them below the poverty line, so far so that the judges kind of erase their fines because they know there's no way of paying them. Um, They are totally like keyed into um, make reconciling arguments that draw from free market principles on the one hand and um, kind of the protectionist policies of the old regime that they had always been a part of on the other. So um, let me give you an example. Uh, we'll continue with our kind of physical marketplace example. Um, during the old regime, uh, the king, since he owned the market, he gave the right to place uh, parasols or basically collapsible market shelters um, to one individual. They, they had the privilege to do that as their business. And so that individual, therefore, also had the privilege to um, rent these parasols to the Dom de All who wanted to cover their food if they didn't want to just sell in the open market square. Um, now, uh, during the revolution, a group of Dom uh, say, 
whoa, 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 this is privilege. The state can't contract with this guy anymore. We need to have free competition between parasol sellers because the Dom actually know another guy who wants to rent parasol who will do it at a cheaper price. So now they want competition to lower their price of rent for their parasol. Um, but at the same token, uh, the Dom de Al are private merchants and they're using public space. And so then they pivot and they say, um, but you should give us uh, priority access because we are doing a service to the nation and, uh, and we're poor, but we're not being leeches on the nation. Uh, we're actually just trying to work in order to provide for our families, to grow strong families. And moreover, we're selling food and that's really useful. Um, so they, they, in the same breath, they're moving between kind of these, um, we want freedom in the marketplace kind of attitudes. And um, well, we're a special exception. The state should have some paternalistic responsibilities. Um, and so it, it's really it's really amazing the just the many moments in which they're able to kind of um, dovetail these two things that we kind of think about in the revolution as the old and the new, but actually show that oftentimes in the eyes of the revolutionaries, they're not so incompatible. And uh, that's why their arguments really have such um, an effect on the general population is that to many other revolutionaries, they're quite convincing. Um, And oftentimes they do get the state to respond to their needs through arguments like these labor negotiations at their finest in some ways there in in the 18th century. And it's so interesting to see how they're taking some of those revolutionary ideals. Certainly these women aren't necessarily reading Rousseau and others, but they're taking some of those revolutionary ideals that they're coming across and they're using them really savvily uh, to benefit them, yet also kind of drawing on their long traditions and what they view, I think, in some ways too, as their own privileges. That's so interesting. And as you're talking about this, I'm even still thinking about the place of Les Alls in Paris today, although now it is this mega shopping center. You still have this sense of sort of a community around Les Alls. It's lots of merchants. It's sometimes big corporations, but sometimes it's families as well. And that this place really sits at the center of Paris in many ways still. Yes, it certainly does. Um, And it's been really fascinating to see actually the attempt to uh, transition back towards a sense of a market. I put that in air quotes, so to speak, because now it's, as you said, a shopping mall. Um, But um, basically, uh, the market had grown too big for Paris itself. Uh, In the 19th century, it ended up uh, before it was shuttled out of the city. In the 19th century, it was Uh, attempted to be organized by the state uh, with these great uh, iron pavilions and that kind of separated the different sale of goods. And then eventually um, it became too much of a traffic nightmare to cart all the food into the city. And they were, um, the markets were actually pushed out to the suburbs uh, where they remain today. And yet, as you um, noticed, and as you mentioned, there's still this kind of um, communal longing for this, uh, this space that's not just a uh, shopping mall, uh, in the eyes of Parisians. But of course, now they have a beautiful garden uh, with different areas to play uh, with the FIFA World Cup going on right now, the Women's World Cup. They have some uh, baby foot, as they call it, uh, like mini football terrains out there uh, for uh, people to come and use. Um, Sanustache, the Dom's uh, parish, still stands uh, firm there and in fact is uh, so central to Parisian life that now that uh, Notre Dame is a little bit out of commission, uh, so to speak, uh, many of the celebrations have been relegated to this uh, church 
uh, equally seen, at, not quite equally, but um, also seen as an important heart of Paris uh, for religious reasons as well. So it continues to maintain these kind of communal, commercial, uh, public space overtones, even though um, it's very much now uh, has a 21st century spin on it. Definitely. That sort of enduring quality of these spaces, especially in these old European cities, the ways in which sometimes these spaces don't necessarily change in their functions is so interesting. Thinking about legacies too, I absolutely love the way that you end your book. Sorry, spoilers, everybody. But in 1852, you you end this this work at a ball that was in honor of the Dom des Halles. Um, and as you state, the Dom seemed to float timelessly above the political symbolism of the occasion that was actually called for uh, the Feast of Saint Napoleon. Yet here again, the Dom des Halles were at the center of a new period of citizenship in negotiating these new definitions of what it meant to be a citizen or a subject under Louis Napoleon. What do you think the legacy of these women were and are currently? Well, for the 19th century, I think um, they very much still um, spoke to an image of the people that uh, was not too rambunctious uh, for Louis Napoleon, right? Uh, he's not exactly going to uh, embrace the, the sans-culottes, the revival of the sans-culottes. Um, but it, it really pointed to kind of the 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 centrality not only of the dom as merchants but again this kind of evoking the uh, the working class that is actually um they call them the sovereign uh, woman of leal in this kind of political pamphlet that describes the scene uh but that really kind of extols uh the the world of work as something that's quote unquote appropriate and ennobling uh for the popular classes so i think we kind of see this um new wrestling with what's what should the political role of the popular classes be? That question starting in the revolution and continuing into the 19th century around questions of work. Now, especially around this time of this ball, uh, you know, 14, four, excuse me, four years earlier, 1848, um, workers are demanding the right um, to work. That is, the state should provide them opportunities to work, to make a living, to provide for their family. Now, I find this a very fascinating transition from the Dom who were arguing that they derived their rights as citizens from their work that proved their social utility. So we still have this really, uh, this emphasis on um, work ennobling the popular classes in the minds of kind of the political elite, um, but what its connection to politics, rights, and citizenship is seems to have uh, shifted slightly. Um, as far as the legacy of these women, um, not just at this moment in time in my conclusion, but moving forward, um, you know, I think the Dom are really um, uh, an optimistic story in the revolution, but also a precautionary one uh, in two regards. Um, first, um, it's pretty emancipatory for a group of uh, marginalized citizens, male or female, to say uh, to the state for the first time, you um, you must uh, meet our demands because we have earned our inclusion in the body politic, right? This is ABCS 101, right? Uh, the, the useful people compose the nation. What is the third estate and what, what 
what is the foundation of the nation. It's people who do useful work for other people in the nation, right? So for this allows people a foot in the door um, at the start of kind of participatory politics uh, with the French Revolution. And yet, um, the Dom's tale also offers us a, a cautionary tale and a warning um, a, against uh, notions of earned citizenship, because the problem with saying that citizenship is earned instead of talking about a priori rights is that, of course, um, someone sets that bar for um, who gets to do what to earn citizenship, right? And so uh, when Napoleon comes uh, to power and he's really able to, with his civil code, um, consoli- consolidate some of the paternalistic tendencies uh, that the directory had uh drifted towards, um, which basically consolidate uh, political power into uh, heads of households, male heads of households, right? All of a sudden, it doesn't really matter what the Dom do from a political standpoint, um, because uh, they can't earn citizenship in the way a male head of household can as the ultimate provider for his family. Um, So uh, again, I think they're kind of an optimistic tale of a political activism and this idea of um, kind of agency and creating political identity. Um, But they also show us the problems with thinking about citizenship as uh, contingent and rights as not um, innate in many ways. Definitely. And as you're talking about sort of their their hopeful symbolism in many ways, I, I can't help but to think it's still an example of the persistent practices of patriarchy that even exist even until the 21st century um, that happened there. Um, Katie, this has been a really enlightening conversation ab- about your book. Before we started recording, you and I were chatting a little bit about one of the best aspects, I think, a little bit biased about being a French historian here, and that is getting to go to the archives and getting to travel to Paris. And I'm wondering if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about your research experience for this particular book. Certainly. So um, when I went to Paris to do my um, preliminary research, I found out very quickly uh, that this was going to be a difficult project because uh, the Dom, as I mentioned, they're very poor. Um, they don't draw up a lot of written contracts, um, unlike, for example, people who are um, wealthier merchants. Like, so for example, some of the seamstresses, uh, they, they, they don't leave behind records of that nature. And so um, they're very clearly scattered across the archives um, without necessarily um, one series or one fond uh, where you can conveniently go and say, okay, I can find a whole lot about the Dom Dale here. In fact, the last list we have of any women who uh, were Dom Dale comes from uh, the king's territory in 1700. So that's Louis the 14th. That's two kings before the revolution, right? Um, that listed wow. their names. So um, we we really don't have a lot to go on, even though they are everywhere, they're everywhere and nowhere. Um, so uh, the research for this book really took me across um, the voices of many other actors in order to find the Dom. So um, I looked at police archives, I looked at judicial records, I looked at uh, petitions to the National Assembly, I looked at committee reports. Uh, there's a whole bunch of committees that uh, track subsistence in the marketplace uh, that try to track, um, especially when the maximum is implemented, things like that. Uh, fiscal policy, how do we recreate taxes? I looked at um, pamphlets, newspapers, 
newspapers. Um, their image is appropriated by propagandists who try to uh, pretend to be them either seriously or um, just kind of metaphorically as a way to prove that they have uh, the backing of the people, right? Some kind of popular legitimacy. Um, so I kind of came to the realization very quickly in my research that um, this was going to be a needle in the haystack kind of project, um, but that I might not have the gift of, um, you know, 14 months to just sit in the archives and look for those needles again. And so I'm very um, grateful that I had the opportunity and the, the funding and research support to do so. Um, and in, in many ways, this became also a book about so many other people in the revolution because it could not be a book just about the Dom because they left us no record to make it a book about them. But I hope because of this challenge, um, it in fact makes the book resonate across um, many more uh, areas of revolutionary inquiry and hopefully can be of interest to uh, people who aren't necessarily just focused on markets in particular. And I think it definitely is. I mean, as somebody who is moving into the revolution, it, it is something that we can learn so much about the revolutionary period, not only about these Dom des Al, but about everyday experience, the ways in which people interacted with major events in the revolution, whether economic, political, the definition of citizenship. You've really created a, a wonderful piece of work here. Um, what are you working on now? Um, well, I'm starting my next project. Um, it's tentatively called Democratizing Forgiveness, Reconciling Citizens in Revolutionary France. So when I was working on um, the book we were just discussing in the Dom des All, um, I had to sift through lots of judicial records, including records um, from the Justice of the Peace, which was a new um, local justice um, in which people could uh, go and basically settle um, debts or um, basically commonplace disputes uh, relatively quickly and cheaply. And uh, the thing that started to fascinate me was that um, the Dom would appear before the judges with their neighbors and kind of seem to sometimes have an agreement already worked out between themselves and that they would have to kind of appeal to the judge and ask the judge to make a ruling in their favor, uh, but using revolutionary logic. Um, and so I started to think, what happens when the power to pardon is rests from the crown, the king, and the cross or God? Um, how does pardon get redistributed through everyday life? Uh, for example, the justice of the peace records and the settling of debts and debt forgiveness being one of them. And so um, that basically this project... Uh, asks us to turn our attention briefly from the terror, um, which is very hot right now and has, has um, several really interesting questions, but ask uh, how amid conflict does, are the French able to forge um, kind of new visions of society through different types of reconciliation. So I'm asking how the revolutionaries basically develop new reparative judicial practices, um, how religious confession is reconceptualized, right? That becomes really political with counter-revolutionary priests, um, how citizens uh, arbitrate local disputes, how they set 
settle bankruptcies in courts, um, how they create innovative religious cults that are supposedly supposed to subsume all different um, faiths into one. And um, hopefully, and you and I are going to have to have several conversations about this, even how conflict is portrayed uh, to youth as well. So I'm really trying to ask how through uh, everyday relations, revolutionary forgiveness can become both a break on individual conflicts, but also a motor for kind of systemic change in relationships among citizens. That sounds so interesting. And it really is uh, very revealing how sometimes when you work on one project, it, it almost kind of seamlessly leads to another and your research and your interests get peaked in that way. So I can't wait to see what comes out of that and what conversations you and I get to have about that in the future. It sounds really interesting. To I me. look forward to it, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've had such a wonderful time getting to talk to you about politics in the marketplace and learn more about your research into 18th century French history. Thank you so much again for joining us, and thank you to Oxford University Press for supplying a review copy of your work. Head over to Oxford University Press's website to purchase a copy of Politics in the Marketplace. And finally, thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode of New Books in History channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Julia Gossard, wishing you happy reading. Thanks, Julia.